Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Marshall Moutineau, the co-founder of Upstream Tech. Upstream Tech is a public benefit corporation that partners with nonprofit and for-profit organizations working towards ecological restoration, supply chain sustainability, and energy efficiency improvement goals, among other things. Marshall's got an interesting story because he worked as a software engineer at several startups and was longing to work on something more purposeful, and a few years ago decided to switch gears and focus on climate change and specifically focus on water problems. We talked about a number of things in this episode, including Marshall's background, how he was feeling that led him to make this transition, how he went about the transition, what led him to choose this problem out of all the other places he could go. And then we talked about the company formation process, what kinds of work they're doing, their acquisition by Natel Energy, and the types of things they're doing today. We also spent some time talking about if Marshall wasn't focused on this area, what other areas are high impact on the climate fight, as well as his advice for anyone out there who's looking to follow down a similar path. I thought we had a great chat, and I hope you enjoy it. Marshall, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm psyched to have you. It's funny. Your, your perspective is different than what we've had on the podcast so far. I think it's a super important one because you were a software engineer working in startups that weren't climate-focused, but you care about climate change and we're feeling this misalignment between the work that you're doing and your concern about this problem. And you not only made the transition, but have done it quite effectively. And there's this like sea of people coming behind you that are feeling like you're feeling, but that don't know how to where to start or how to go about that transition. Meaning that this episode content, which is just your story, but super important. Awesome. Yeah, I think... In the intro, you talk about people having big bats for this problem. I hope that I can lend kind of like a perspective about having a small bat, but looking for those big balls to hit in climate, like moving the needle, even if your interest is in technology. You make websites, like how can I impact climate? I think that's something I have found a nice path for, and hopefully I can lend some advice to other people. And actually, now that you've brought that up, I mean, I recorded that seven or eight weeks ago when I was just getting going. My worldview is still evolving, but it does seem like there are no silver bullets. There's no one like magic pill and that we need all the help we can get. And ultimately we need big, we need small, we need everything in between. So yeah, my perspective is still in flux, but it's fair to say that it might be evolving from when I initially recorded that now that you mention it. Cool. That's good to hear. Yeah. I think it's reflected in the questions in your episode. Like it's not just about managing a ton of money. You can be in this fight for climate for improving our understanding of climate or getting the word out with a broad range of skills. So I think it's exciting. And, and I think that needs to be communicated to everyone. Like you can do this no matter what your background is, just like technology touches so many different aspects, right? Like if I work in tech, I could work in tech that is music, or I could work in tech that is fitness, right? You can kind of marry two interests to find something that works for you. I think in climate, climate is just as broad of a problem. And so no matter what your skill set is or your interests are, you can find that niche within climate in a way that you can make a difference, I think. Yeah, that's been my assessment thus far as well, which is exciting. 
So I'd love to get into some of that history, but before we do, what is Upstream Tech? Upstream Tech is a group of 20 brilliant interdisciplinary people, and we are working on solving problems at the water energy food nexus. So what that means is looking at all of the problems centered around the connectivity of water, energy, and food. And those things are really the crux of climate and climate change. And so what we do is we take tons of environmental data from satellites, weather forecasts, in situ measurements like the flow through a river, and we use machine learning to uncover interesting patterns that help monitor change and also plan projects that would have impact. And when did you start the company? I think it's been about three years, maybe three and a half years. And how the heck did you get there? So working in kind of traditional tech roles early in my career, and my co-founder Alden, we kind of went through every step of our early career together. We both worked same at- company? Same companies, same college even. And we were optimizing for learning. We wanted to build the skill sets we needed, just learn as much as possible. And we got to a point where we were realizing like, okay, we've been optimizing for learning. And now we want to kind of optimize for something else. And that something else was purpose or impact. You can call it a million different things. And after a number of long runs, we ran together too. We spent a lot of time together. We ran through a bunch of things that meant a lot to us. And one of those things was the environment, kind of more broadly. How old were you at this time? I think we were 23, 24. And was it always part of the plan that you would shift gears from learning to purpose? Or was it on one of your long runs, you just got like struck by a bolt of lightning? Definitely runner's high probably had something to do with it. But it wasn't part of a long-term plan. It was kind of looking day to day and being like, what am I optimizing for today? Like learning. I want to just learn as much as possible about how to build distributed systems or how to find product market fit. Like I just want to in- totally be engrossed in those things. But there got to be a point where when you're spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week working on things where the underlying purpose doesn't resonate with you, I think you start to lose that energy, like the energy, there's a tank of energy and it's being depleted. Whereas if you're working on something that does resonate with you, your tank is filling up. So did you know that going in? I didn't know it going in, but I can tell you like after spending years of working, just a few years, but working on those problems. The the grand old (laughs) age of 23. (laughs) After spending a couple years (laughs) working on those problems, I felt my tank depleted and I could no longer like give it the energy that I entered those jobs with. And Alden was in the same place. Alden is my co-founder at Upstream. So we were like, how do we refill our tanks? How do we find that purpose? And we landed on environment as something we thought we could make a difference in. And that came about by, similar to you, just like talking to as many people as we could and then talking to all the people they introduced us to. So when you first started talking to them, you were focused on finding purpose, but it wasn't climate that was driving you at that time? Yeah, we had narrowed it down to like the environment broadly. Uh And that at least helped us talk to the right professors, talk to friends who were doing maybe environmental engineering. And they all continually drove us towards freshwater as this problem that was unsolved or underserved by technology. Were you talking to freshwater people or were these people from a wide range of backgrounds? Because nobody, for example, has sent me to freshwater so far. And I've probably talked to 300 people. Wide range of people. And climate people too. Because if you think about it, climate change is largely water change. 
on one side, you either have too little water from a changing climate and you have drought, you have famine, you have extreme heat. On the other side, you have too much water, you have flooding, you have rising sea levels, you have coastal disasters, right? And so in my mind, and I think a lot of people think about it this way, like climate change is really water change. It's an impact on how our water is moving through these systems. Now, when we talk about long-term with overshoot of one and a half degrees or two degrees and Paris Agreement and all of that, and we also talk about catastrophic tipping points, which is like some unknown thing that we might trigger that like compounds things from different angles that leads to who knows what, right? But water, it seems like I have not gotten very far in my own personal investigation, but the way I've heard people talk about it, water is something that may actually be the nearest term thing of any of those. Is that true? I think so. And I think we came at this idea of climate change sort of from the opposite direction that I would expect. A lot of people come at it from like, what is the thing causing it? And now how do I reduce that input that's causing accelerated climate change? So how do I reduce carbon, decarbonize, change to renewables? We came at it from the opposite direction via these people we met and the people they introduced us to, which was what are the impacts of climate change? The climate has changed. There are going to be ramifications of that. And those ramifications are going to be immediately seen through freshwater. Is it fair to say that your focus is more in the adaptation bucket? Yeah, adaptation, mitigation, it certainly started there. And so where it's now come to clean energy and reducing carbon and decarbonization has been also through freshwater, which is freshwater as an energy source through hydropower. And that really connected the whole thing from mitigation How do we monitor agriculture? How do we understand how to improve the cultivation of those crops to like reduce the impacts on the freshwater ecosystems? How do we look at coastal communities and understand flooding or rising sea levels? And how do we help plan projects that make them more resilient? And now it's connected all the way back to, okay, now that we're understanding how freshwater is being consumed, either by agriculture or for restoration or what have you, We can also start to understand how it can be used to generate electricity through hydropower. So when you and Alden tripped over this freshwater problem of increasing extremes and increasing extremes will lead to droughts in some places and flooding in others and unpredictability and and so on, I guess walk me through that progression because it's been a few years now since you started the company, but you're having those discussions. What'd you do next? How'd you begin to connect those dots? So I should back up a little bit. Like we didn't just... Talk to a couple people and then like, all right, here are the things we need to build to solve these problems. We talked to a bunch of people and saw a very small problem that we can solve. That problem was the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation has a really cool program in the Pacific Northwest where in years of drought, they pay farmers to leave their water rights. And I'm not going to get into water rights because it's a whole mess of complicated context, but they would leave their water rights in the stream to provide enough freshwater for freshwater species that would otherwise not have enough water to spawn. When you say leave their water rights in the stream, what, and I don't even want to get into water rights, but like, I don't know what that means. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so yeah. basically, <laughs> I'll give the really quick overview. It differs everywhere, but water rights in a very broad sense is the right to use water. So largely, if I own a farm, I also own a water right. And that water right means every year I can withdraw a certain amount for a certain purpose. If I have a farm... From the 1800s, I have a senior water right, which means I am first in line to withdraw my acre feet of water, my 100 acre feet or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. 
those can be traded in some places. Is this a domestic thing or a global thing? In most places that have water scarcity. So you see it in the U.S. West. You don't see it in the U.S. East. You see it in Australia. Same frameworks. It works the same way from place to place? Yeah, largely. I mean, there are a lot of nuances. Australia even has this digital marketplace that's quite advanced, where in the U.S. we do not have something like that. So the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation was leasing or buying these water rights to use for environmental purposes. But in order to monitor that program to make sure it was working and to make sure the water was actually not being used for farming, they would drive hundreds of miles to these farms very frequently throughout the season to get out of their car, look at the ground and say, okay, it's brown. They're not using it for farming. And then they would get back in their car and drive. And it was just this massive cost, this massive amount of driving that we were able to replace with satellites and machine learning. How do you uncover that? That was through a conversation with, I think, one of Alden's friends Uh who went to a school specializing in water rights and water law in the West, who was like, this is a huge problem. Okay, so the first thing that you saw is that the adherence monitoring was incredibly inefficient. Exactly. And we were able to streamline that with technology and skills that we already had. And so what that meant was more money in this program could be allocated to actually going out and doing these projects rather than to monitoring them. And so with the National Fish and Wildlife that was doing that monitoring? It was a bunch of different entities within like this program run by them. And it cost some money to do that. And so you went to them and said, we could save you a bunch of money in time. Right. And instead of spending all this money on driving to these places or hiring people to drive to these places, you can instead just do more work, do more projects, right? And you can spend more money for these water rights to be left in stream. And that's really important in years of drought because we have so many freshwater ecosystems and species that are threatened by these now vast swings in water availability. And they're going to go extinct if they can't spawn. Okay. So you uncovered this problem and you went to them and said that you're doing this inefficiently and we can do it for you more efficiently and save you money and time. And then did you build a product? Did you get a contract? How'd you navigate that chicken and egg? At the very first, we did a pilot with them. We built a product that would pull in satellite imagery and classify the field as irrigated or not, mm-hmm. right? A very simple problem to solve. And we provided them like with a nice dashboard and sent them login credentials and would generate reports. So it was kind of this MVP that solved the problem for them. And what we realized as we were doing this was, okay, this is not a problem constrained to this type of project, this type of project where you're leaving water in stream and, and leasing water, right? monitoring in general, especially these kind of larger landscapes, is a problem across most climate mitigation, across most project implementation. Monitoring is usually a line item in a budget that's either massive or just omitted entirely. Mm -hmm. And for us to accelerate mitigation projects, we need to know what is and is not working. And we can only do that through monitoring. And so when you initially approached this, you saw this problem that this one agency had, but I guess how big of a problem was it in terms of how much were they paying and how much would they be willing to pay and how many entities are there like that where the similar monitoring could be applied? Did you do any of that math up front or did you just get going? We've definitely done that math now, (laughs) but I think early on we were kind of like, honestly, To kind of talk a little bit about our goals, we were not trying to start a traditional startup. Alden and I's goal out of the gate was how do we just 
get to a financial place of equilibrium where we can work on this for a long time, maybe the rest of our lives, like give or take. So our goal was not to raise money. We were just like, let's find some people we can help that could pay us enough to live. Let's do that for the rest of our lives. So you did that. And then what happened next? We talked to groups across the Western US and everyone was like, hey, we could use something like that. Groups that are all focused on similar monitoring for adherence? At that point, it was mostly conservation groups who were doing some type of program across a landscape. Mm -hmm. And they were either doing the monitoring for that program in person or they weren't doing the monitoring at all. So we were able to adapt this thing that was primarily for farm fields to other types of use cases like wetlands or kind of like a conservation easement and streamline the monitoring for that in the same way. Were these groups paying you? Yeah. And did you achieve your aim in terms of that equilibrium that you aspired for? Or did you end up raising money for the company? We never raised money. We got a grant from the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, which if you live in Massachusetts and you're interested in innovation or finding some way to work on this problem, they are an absolutely incredible resource. They gave us $65,000 non-dilutive grant. It was incredible. Yeah, I'd love to talk to someone over there. Yeah, well, we hired the person who gave us that grant three years later. She is now on our team, and she believed so much in what we were doing that now she is leading a lot of the work we do with conservation groups. And what does the team look like today? The team has evolved. For a while, it was just Alden and I. Then we hired Amadou, who was one of our first software engineers besides us. Since then, we've kind of grown into this interdisciplinary team. Some folks come from a background in environmental engineering. We have one woman, Abby, who graduated from the Yale School of Forestry. And what it's become is this interdisciplinary team that can connect not just like product market fit to product, but we're building stuff and like actually connecting it to how it's going to be used on the ground and working with people who aren't used to advanced technology to like put it to use. So basically, we found this, and you've probably seen this in your conversations, climate and conservation and water, they're extremely context-rich areas of interest. There's so much context. There's, you have to understand the local politics of why certain energy is not used or why conservation is important or why agriculture reigns supreme. And you have to connect that to why decisions are being made. If you want to move the needle in some place, you have to understand all of those things. So we really focused on hiring people who could connect all of those dots. And I think where the team has really ended up is a place where the software engineers are now experts in hydrology, or they understand how to model the output of any hydro turbine. So it's kind of like these software engineers and these environmental engineers now becoming Experts across... So the environmental engineers can also write a bunch of iOS code, right? Not quite, but they are looking at satellite imagery and saying, you know what, I think we should do this type of analysis on it in order to get this result. And they can talk about all of the different satellites we use. Like They're experts now, not just environmental engineering, but also in satellites. What type of legal entity is this? We originally incorporated it as a public benefit corporation. So it's kind of an in-between of a for-profit company, but you have this mission that guides you. And our mission was to create technology that drove environmental conservation. So were you acquired or was it a merger? Or tell me about Natel and how that relationship came about and what is that relationship? Natel Energy is a 
incredible company. It's this low head distributed hydropower company. So what that means is they're building a hydropower that exists in this new realm. It's largely environmentally friendly. It has fish passage, which as you can imagine, like traditional hydro is usually not great for fish. But at Natel, they kind of had that as a first order objective. Like let's develop hydropower that coexists with fish and actually has uplift for freshwater ecosystems. It actually came about through Matthew Norden, who was a previous guest on this show. He introduced me to Gia Schneider, who's the CEO of Natel. Is Natel also a public benefit corporation? I think at heart they are. Like they have a mission that sits along profit. They have a mission to create this kind of world-changing, carbon-reducing hydropower. But I think at the time that they incorporated, public benefit was not largely an option, right, as it is now. So Matthew Norden introduced them, and? Gia Schneider kind of saw what we were doing and saw that it connected to her work in hydropower. Basically, for any sort of distributed hydropower, you're not building one mega dam. You're building dozens of very small hydropower installations. And when you're doing anything at that scale, you need some sort of automation to help find where to do that and then monitor the outcomes that you expect. So Gia saw this interrelationship between what we were doing and what her company was doing and what they kind of endeavored to do. And I wouldn't call it an acquisition. I think it was a very natural partnership between us and her funders being largely impact-focused capital we're really excited to work with us and fund what we're doing. But I mean, are you still run as an independent entity or did you merge onto their cap table? Or Structurally, we did merge into their cap table. I think operationally, we've operated fairly independently. Mm-hmm. I think GIA obviously helps a lot. And we're finding more and more of this kind of blurry barrier, especially as we work more into hydropower. And I could talk about that a little bit too, because I think it's pretty interesting. But it's been a pretty incredible relationship we've been able to grow this team and this culture in a way that we wouldn't be able to do on our own. How do you think about profits today? We kind of place things into a couple different buckets. We have this entire set of products that are all about conservation. How do we make conservation more effective? We look at that as we want to charge the right amount. We want to charge an amount that reflects the value we're giving. We're not going to IPO based on the revenues from that, right? It's still core to this mission of like, we want to just have as much impact as possible. And I think on the hydropower side, these entities, these utilities are dealing in massive energy markets. And it really is like this game-changing technology for them to be able to operate more efficiently and trade in energy markets more effectively. Mm -hmm. And that translates to real dollars. So I think that area is going to be where we focus in terms of revenue and profits. And it all shares the same technology. The conservation arm is going to continue to just like maximize for impact. Given that the bigger company that you build, if you're doing a mission-driven business like this, then the bigger impact you can have, presumably. And so does that increase your ambition to actually build a a big profitable company? Or how do you think about that in terms of long-term goals? Profitability is a huge goal for us, and we've been growing pretty aggressively. We're now at 20 people, and I think two years ago we were three. I think in our realm, that's a pretty fast growth. I've been part of other companies that have gone from two to 100 in the same amount of time, but that has felt like a lot of growth for us. So I think our goal now is to get to that level of profitability where we can just keep doing this for the long term. And 
that actually leads to one concern I've heard a lot, like one misconception. I hear a lot of time from people that are in traditional tech that there's this massive competition for their, their interest via compensation. That if I switch to working on climate, there's a massive financial downside to doing that. How do I justify that when I'm getting all of this? Yeah, especially the way your story began. I think anyone hearing the way your story began would just be nodding as if it's like validation for all the concerns that they had yeah, about entering the space. And that's fair. But I do think what our goal is actually to do is to, first, we pay people well, but we're not planning an exit as upstream. And so the way we're going to kind of go about that is through profit sharing. And I think there are interesting models to explore when you want to work on something that's focused on impact, that you can create the same reward mechanisms for incredible team performance. And so our goal, once we get to profitability, is to start having a profit sharing pool for our team. And if you take off your upstream hat for a second and you just look at like innovation more broadly in climate, how much of the approach that you've taken do you feel like is just a personal decision because of you and your values versus the right way, for example, for someone to think about innovation in climate? I think there are a lot of ways to go about it. And I don't think that my way is, of course, it's not the only way. But I think the first thing I would look at kind of in order of operations is, for example, one of the big four tech companies. Mm -hmm. I think you could probably have more impact by working within that framework to improve that company's climate standing, their expenditure. I have a friend who I worked with at Twitter who now works at another one of those big four tech companies. And their goal, their mission, and they actually wrote a blog post that got me interested in this in the early days, is to reduce the amount of energy that the data centers of that company use. And now to use this like massive machine learning resource at that company to help forecast wind turbine production. Does it rhyme with Google? It could rhyme. <laughs> yes. Basically, like if you work at Google, there's a massive opportunity for you to impact climate change because there's an immense amount of resources behind you. So I'm a 23, 25, 30-year-old software engineer, right? And I'm working at an ad network for sake of argument. And... I've got this climate change thing hanging over my head, but I've got some concerns. And so let's just do a little role playing here. Like you're Marshall, who's been working in climate for several years now, who's now made this transition. So let me just try a few different concerns out on you. I'm curious to see yeah, what you'll yeah. say. Yeah. So, so Marshall, gosh, I really want to help, but I just can't, I can't take the hit, man. I've got bills to pay. I would first look and see if your company has any sort of relationship with a certain data center, or if you run your data centers yourself. Because often within data centers, there's a massive opportunity to optimize operations, to make sure that carbon is properly offset. A lot of the cloud service providers now all say that it's zero carbon, but they have a long way to go to actually get there. Are there venture scale opportunities in climate that can also be high impact on the problem? Absolutely. And that's something that I think your podcast has done a great job showing too. Like people put it this way, yes, they're higher risk, but they're not necessarily lower return, right? I do think there's a place for companies that are going to focus not as intensely on the returns. Mm -hmm. But I think that across the board, especially in energy, mm -hmm. you can build a company that has the same returns as any other company. 
Okay, let me try another one. So Marshall, look, I mean, I've been in software my whole career and I want to come over and focus on climate change, but the software opportunities are few and far between and the software opportunities that I've found so far feel like greenwashing. They don't feel like they're really making impact. Is it possible to do something in software that's high impact on the problem? That is a question I get all the time. In some cases, I end up hiring that person. (laughs) In other cases, I think we need to do a better job connecting those people with the opportunities. And I I hear a lot of times like, man, I wish there was a job board where I could see really cool climate-related companies at the intersection of tech and climate. It's something I heard so much that I am in the process of creating kind of like a climate-focused job board. I need some help. If anyone listening wants to help, help me create this job board. What skills do you need help with? Honestly, just like Product management, marketing, like I think getting the word out is a really important piece that I haven't had the resources to do. Mm-hmm. Doing research to find these companies and then soliciting their job postings, I think that's a piece of it. Those are pieces I could use help with. And one thing that was inspired by this podcast is actually this idea where we can highlight people who have made the jump, maybe everyday software engineers. Like I am now working in climate. How did I make that switch and what am I doing now? and highlight those people as well, little stories on the site. So there's a whole range of things I could use help with there. Yeah, that was another one that I had for you, which is just, hey, I want to do this, but man, I've been looking for a while and I can't even find any companies that are focused on this. Where should I look? And obviously your job board is one, but let's say your job board didn't exist. Where should people go? What should they do? How should they go about it? I think one area, and this is slightly biased because it's the area that we exist in, but geospatial science is an area that often sits at the intersection of software and climate. There are an immense amount of companies that are just looking at satellite data that are doing analysis on it. They're understanding how oceans are changing, or they're looking at how crop yields are changing globally. And I think that those companies often have a really great opportunity to get into this in a pretty natural way because they're structured as software companies. So some examples of those are Descartes Labs or Planet Labs. Planet actually even flies their own CubeSats, like hundreds of these. There's this company called Development Seed. They're doing incredible work. And it's actually a good opportunity to point out that I think when it comes to climate, companies or organizations that would typically be competitive are now just collaborative. We don't have time or energy to divert from just solving these problems to compete and kind of argue for business. Like instead, we met a company, an incredible company, Salo AI. They are both ex-PhDs that did tropical forest research. And now they've started a company that uses satellites and machine learning to understand the niche of forests as it relates to climate change and fire risk. And Naturally, you would view that and say, okay, there are competition because it's monitoring, it's satellites, it's machine learning, but there's so many problems to solve and so little time to solve them, honestly, that we now work together. They see someone who wants to monitor something about water or plan a project related to wetlands, they send them our way. We see something about forests and we send them their way. It's just this collaborative environment and probably one you've seen as you've met people, right? People just want to connect and connect and connect. Yes and no. Certainly there's that spirit widely. But for example, if you look at 
the NGO world is just as one example. When you have 18 foundations doing 80% of climate giving and climate giving is like a tiny sliver of what it should be, then you have people just by necessity, they're just like competing over scraps. And so so it does get competitive. If you look at some of the religious wars around different pet technologies, I think it gets competitive. And certainly from a political landscape, it's not everybody working arm in arm and singing kumbaya. So, I mean, to some degree, I think that's true. And certainly people have been very generous with their time as I've made the rounds, which I greatly appreciate. But at the end of the day, I think there's also just a human element that people are people. That's fair. Well, I guess maybe I should reframe that. I hope it can become as collaborative an environment. And especially kind of in our earlier conversations, we would meet people at NASA doing work that overlapped ours. And they just wanted to help, right? They wanted to teach us. And now that one of those early people works with us part-time, like it's just this world where we have these urgent problems. And I think people in some realms have recognized that we just got to work together to solve it. Let me see if I can get on my phone. We'll try something new and I'll see if I can pick off a few of these questions that I, that I got on Twitter prior to us getting going. So here's one from Rishi Taparia, whose Twitter handle is TAPS, at T-A-P-S. He said, what APIs should exist but don't? What are the biggest software needs in the industry? What did you find when you started this journey and say, you do that how? I think I'll start with the APIs that need to exist. Mm -hmm. When we started, ingesting satellite data was non-trivial. And this is kind of a story of what now does exist in a pretty incredible way. And then I'll talk about what I wish existed. I think groups like Google and NASA and Planet and Descartes have developed these APIs to make ingesting and using satellite imagery more accessible. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a huge barrier because you're dealing with this massive scale of data, you're having to screen for clouds, like all of this really nasty stuff, like correcting the geometries and the projections and just endless problems. And I think when we started, that was a problem that wasn't solved and it was quite hard. What I think needs to exist more. So basically, a lot of these organizations have been told for a decade, like gather data, collect data, store that data. And so there are these massive warehouses of environmental data collected by NGOs, by private organizations, by growers. And it is totally siloed and often protected viciously right? Because they've been told that this data is valuable for years. They don't know exactly how to unlock the value from that data yet, but they've been told it's valuable. And so I think it's not quite an API, but like helping someone who's trying to solve a problem tap into that data to prove that something is feasible, that's a massive barrier because it involves building trust with that organization. It involves meeting the right people. Uh, just to use an example, Say you wanted to nearcast solar production, which is a, something I know a group is doing right now. I would wager that there are a number of data sets of where solar has been installed. What are the rooftops that have that solar? What are the exact lat longs? And I bet a lot of those data sets are not publicly available at all. And I think they're closed off. And if this group had access to those data sets, if there's some way to figure out, okay, what are the biggest questions? How do we unlock those data sets for people who with, with curious minds to play with and see if something is feasible? I think that is the biggest problem. Not exactly an API, but... And Pete Skamarok, who's at Pete Skamarok as well, S-K-O-M. 
M-O-R-O-C-H. He asked a similar question. He said, what data sets don't exist that would make your work easier? And is there any government data that you use as hard to work with that should be improved? So I think I answered the first part. The second part, the government doesn't get enough credit in this realm, but I think NASA and NOAA have done a really incredible job in the USGS streamflow data. I think they've done an incredible job creating accessible APIs that work in the way that a software engineer would expect. And they probably don't get enough credit for that, to be fair. I think an area that kind of sits at a public-private intersection is in grid data. I've tried to find power line location information before to help understand vegetal encroachment, which leads to fire risk. And man, that's hard to find. Stuff like that, I think, is just... You got to know someone at the utility or you have to buy like an $80,000 data set that someone had mapped out that's now out of date or something, you know, like those types of data sets. I think we can software engineers could really like play with and unlock some interesting insights, but they're difficult to find. This is back to a question from me. But when you think about the broad scope of climate change and all the different ways that it could be attacked, what are some of the other high leverage angles, either on the innovation front or otherwise, that get you most excited, just in terms of ability to have an impact on the problem? I think there's a lot of opportunity in forecasting power generation. We're like entering this new era of a grid, right, Mm -hmm. where power is going to be generated in this distributed fashion. And a lot of marketing is like natural gas will be the thing that fills in the gaps with solar and wind. Or the hydro industry is like hydro is going to be the thing that fills in the gaps. I think figuring out how those gaps will be filled and with incredible forecasting for solar production, for wind production, for hydro production, I think that is really going to make this transition more seamless. And there's a massive amount of work to be done in that realm, especially when you're not just looking at how much will this hydro plant produce next week or over the season. Or how much will the solar panel produce with weather forecasts? But looking at them as an interconnected system is a massive and very interesting problem. Semi-related question, but if you had a big pot of money, say $100 billion, and you could put it towards anything you wanted to have maximum impact on the climate fight, where would it go? How would you allocate it? Partially, I would continue what I'm doing now, which is try to, at a much larger scale, which is try to employ as many brilliant people as possible to be thinking about this in a full-time manner. I think a lot of people are doing it after hours or as a side project. And to be able to just be like, this is now your job to think about this all day. That I think is the best use of a large amount of money like that. I think second to that is to put projects in the ground, especially clean energy projects. When you're looking, and I'm biased right now that I'm working with Gia, but she's shown me this path where We have so many non-powered dams across the world, like these dams that are just sitting there with potential energy. You could retrofit those with some energy-producing turbine. There's a massive amount of energy to be had there. I think deploying projects would be where that money would go. And last is a bunch of listeners, not all of them, but a bunch of listeners on the show look like you did before you made this transition. So if you will, speak for a moment to them. And as they're listening to this, what message do you have for them? As software engineers... We are a privileged group of people. We work in a really supportive industry. We are well compensated for that work. And I think that privilege allows us to take risks. And I think it 
is possible if you want to dip your toe in to actually just jump in and take a year to try to work on this problem. Switch to a job that maybe doesn't pay quite as much, but you can live an incredible quality of life and work on something that matters. I think climate change is not something that you can be on the sidelines for if you have the luxury not to be. Well, Marshall, thank you for all the hard work that you're doing. And thanks so much for coming on the show as well. You've been a great guest. It's my pleasure. I love the podcast. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.